thought that was great. Yeah. So, it's not like I want to spend it, but it's <laughs> kind of a nice visual aid in class. That being said, how many of you read the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius? Well, good, okay. Um, what'd you think? Yeah? I loved it. It completely kicks ass. Yeah, I mean, on a scale of one to ten, he's about fourteen. No, he's just completely off the chart. We have no right to expect that anybody is going to be this dogged in his pursuit of virtue. I mean, this is a Platonic guardian come to life. What else? Yeah. The the introduction to my copy actually makes a really interesting point. Is that even though, as you say, he's, there's, I don't think we know anyone who's quite as excellent as he, he still is, he's below the stoic ideal. Right. Yeah. Which is, uh, Which is unforgiving, yeah. to say the least. Yeah. He doesn't quite hit the stoic ideal well. I mean, if he doesn't hit it, you go, the rest of us have no chance. You know? How so? He, uh, he experiences emotion. He gets angry at people. He gets frustrated. Uh, he gets tired. He has self-doubt. Right, yeah, uh, so <clears throat> uh, this is part of the idealizing tendency that comes out of Greece. This is the Roman extension of that. And uh, these guys are the best that the, that the Roman society, Roman civilization produced. I mean, of all the Romans, uh, the Stoics are the best of the bunch, and Marcus Aurelius is kind of the pick of the litter. What else? Yeah. I thought the language at times was a little confusing. It was always doff and thou and thy, and that, okay, yeah. that threw me off a little bit sometimes. Okay, that's, that's the addition more than anything else. Oh, okay. Um, but, um, well, again, uh, it, it's tempting to archaize anything that's as old as this, yeah. all right? Um, so it, 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 it's not an easy book because it's not completely coherent, but it's not intended to be a book at all. Right. right. It's just his notes to himself. Yeah. Uh, he just, he makes you really want to be a stoic. Yeah, well, he does. Does he look like he's having fun? Well, I mean, I, I don't know. I guess it's just um, some of the things that stuck out to me in the meditations were in book two and book five, especially when he's talking about getting out of the Mm-hmm. And I, I just, I feel like some of the things in this book. Get your lazy waiting. ass out of bed, right. right? And don't be waiting for somebody else to do it for you, right? It's going to get done. It's going to get done by you. Welcome to adulthood. Yeah. I can't really. I feel like I got the sense that he was like, he's like depressed, like that he basically is like, he there's, I mean he kind of has hope in some lines, but for the most part it's like no hope. Well, he doesn't. Uh, <clears throat> he doesn't have the Christian future state of rewards and punishments. He may have some vague sense of rewards and punishments, but <coughs> as in the case of Socrates, there's no guarantee of that. Yeah. I'm not sure I'd say depressed or <clears throat> melancholic. Yeah. Okay. Sick. Okay. Um, That's a very fine distinction. How do you mean? Well, he. <clears throat> I mean, it's like. I don't know about psychologically speaking, but it was just more, um, just kind of more, I don't know, more, it wasn't like the kind of obsessive stuff you see when people are actually depressed and like they 
obsessed about something, he's just very solid and just kind of melancholic, writing about all his thoughts and everything. Um, but is this like sort of pessimism? Is this kind of like a mark of a stoic, or is he special? Um, well, uh, he would say, of course, that he's not special. Mm -hmm. um, it's the mark of a stoic. Uh, well, the stoics are disdainful of uh, much of what passes for valuable stuff in this world. But then again, so was Socrates. Was Socrates um, melancholic? Hard to know, actually. Certainly there's a possibility, all right? Um, behind all that irony, what's there? And nobody knows what's under that final mask. <clears throat> Except that when he dies, he says, I owe Asclepius a cock. <laughs> now, one way of reading that is that it, what it means is life is a disease. That's Nietzsche's reading. This is life denying. Another way of reading it is to say that human beings are subject to certain intrinsic diseases. One of these would be fear of death. He's overcome that. That's why he owes Asclepius a cock. You can read it in more than one way. But uh, there aren't all that many happy philosophers. All right. Except, well, maybe Aristotle, because he says, look, I'm going to explain to you what I, how I live, and then I'm going to explain to you that this is what is really good for people. Um, it's very interesting, the question of human happiness and what we mean by it and what its value is. The eudaimonistic philosophers say, look, the point of your life is to be happy. Kant, who is in the Stoic tradition, tough guy, I like Kant, um, he says, don't try and be happy, because right? that puts you at the, at the uh, mercy of the vagaries of fate. Instead, try and be the sort of person that deserves to be happy, which is actually a very deep insight. All right? Um, we all want to be happy. Not all that many of us want to deserve happiness. What are you going to say? One of my favorite lines from this read was uh, in book three. He says, uh, Mortal life can offer you anything better than justice and truth, self-control and courage. If I say you can discern any higher ideal, why turn it to it with your whole soul? But if nothing seems to you better than the deity which grows within you, direct every impulse uh, towards justice. So that what, what seems to be saying is, the best I can find is self-control and duty. If there's anything better, go for that, but I don't know of anything better. That's it. I mean, a very powerful statement. This is a book with a lot of very powerful statements. I've been reading this since I was a teenager. My copy is, is pretty well beaten up, but uh, many parts of it have been very handy to me at various times in life. Uh, when I was getting chemotherapy for cancer, this is the book I brought with me. Shut up, crybaby. <laughs> no, get over it. All right. Um, you gonna, you want your problems solved? Well, here's the deal. The only person going to solve your problems is you. Right. Welcome to being an adult. All right. What we have is a world full of people standing around waiting for somebody else to solve their problems. Well, that means those problems are never going to get solved. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the Stoics are the ultimate intellectual tough guys. And they take no crap from anybody else. And, very importantly, they take no crap from themselves. Don't give me any excuse about it. No, 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 I don't want to hear it. Yeah. When I was ordering this copy online, I glanced through the reviews, oh. and someone said, I didn't have a father growing up, and I've adopted Marcus Aurelius as my father. Sure. And then I read it, and I understood that. 
Okay. And like he just gives a lot of really practical advice about like here's how to be a good person. Yeah, I mean it's an amazingly powerful and also in many ways practical book, right? You don't have to believe in the realm of the forms or any of the other jazz, the categorical imperative <clears throat> that we're going to get later on. Here he just says, look, you know what you're supposed to do. Do it and shut up. Yeah. You reminded me a great deal, actually, of uh, the modern thinker Jordan Peterson. Yes. Jordan Peterson would no doubt like him. Yeah. Um, I find it odd, though, like the whole father thing, that his son was not nearly as great as he would. He was a monster. And you think he would... <coughs> at least kind of talk about that in his meditations a little bit or like notes to his son oh I guess he didn't mean it to be read but I feel like there would be more discussion about his son in that I didn't get to he has apparently no special attachment to his son that he doesn't have it to every other human being alright in other words his ordinary paternal feelings are very limited or the other way of looking at it is that he's extended them to everybody alright uh that's got to have an impact on your personal relationships. Imagine being Commodus, son of Marcus Aurelius. You do the right thing, dad says, yeah. Well, what am I supposed to do, put a medal on you? You did the right thing. Everybody that's worth anything does the right thing. Shut up. All right? Uh, I'll tell you when you do the wrong thing on the assumption that you don't know. But when you do the right thing, don't expect anything from me. I do the right thing all the time. And, you know, I don't expect Zeus to come out and pat me on the head, get, grow up and get over it. All right? Be a man and do the right thing for the right reason, because it's the right thing. I mean, I like the simplicity of Marcus. If it is not right, do not do it. If it is not true, do not say it. Now, the problem is that you can teach that to any six-year-old, and the terrible thing about it is that it's true. And yet, how many times do we overlook simple, obvious, first grade truths and instead you persuade ourselves with an, an astonishing tangle of self-deception that, well, lying wasn't bad and doing bad things wasn't bad. I had to and, you know, my feelings and, you know, my, my family and, you know, society capitalism no <laughs> you're a human being shut up get rid of all that crap because none of that's real the only one to control you is you right and you have to answer for your actions so why didn't they have a close relationship with Commodus <laughs> imagine having Marcus Aurelius as your real father rather than as an adopted father all right Nothing you can do is ever going to live up to the standards he sets for himself and meets. Damn. See, that is a pretty big flaw, though. Well, um, you can take it that way. If what you think is that people should uh, get all gushy and touchy-feely about, about other people's evil. Well, at least in some way he should be supportive because he's going to be the next... Emperor, yeah, so. okay, that, everybody makes mistakes. He should have chosen someone else, clearly. <laughs> but uh, um, I don't want to have to make excuses for my son. I want my son to act like in a way that doesn't require me to make excuses. I mean, who's got the better of that argument? You see, the problem is, whenever you try and tell Marcus Aurelius he's wrong, he's going to point out what a worm you are. And in fact, the problem is, I read this and I feel like a worm. <laughs> right? No, I mean... 
all the excuses, all the bullshit self-indulgence that people give, no, no. Don't even start that with it. Point by point, we must ask ourselves if death is a dreadful thing because it deprives us of this. <laughs> okay. Um, remember, Marcus Aurelius is the loneliest man in the world. He's too powerful to have friends. Look, once you become a Roman emperor or an American president, you don't have any equals, and that means you don't have any genuine friends. Everybody that comes to you has an ulterior motive. They always have their hand out. And it's just built into the fact that you're an emperor or a president. There's no one who says, oh, let's just hang together, Mr. President. No, no, no. Um, when you get together with the president, they tell you exactly what they want. Everybody wants something. And none of them are honest. Right? They're just degrees of dishonesty. Uh, they're liars. They're selfish. They're thieves. They're crooks of various descriptions. And Marcus Aurelius meets him all the time, every day. He reigns for 19 years. Yeah. At one point he says, what is evil? And then he says, something that I know well. <laughs> it is something you see around you every day. I mean, again, this is the, the center of everything. This is, this is the Roman Empire, and he's the emperor. This is one of God's jokes on us. He's as close as the human species will ever come to a platonic guardian. It's important to point out on that point that he didn't make the platonic city. Plato thought that if a platonic guardian came along, we would have the platonic city and it would last forever. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, provided, of course, that you could get rid of everybody over 10. That was kind of independent. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, um, Marcus is completely unique, right? I mean, in some ways, this goes well with what we read uh, when we were looking at uh, the the Christians as the Romans saw them, Pliny and Trajan going, oh, "What are we supposed to do with this stuff?" Marcus Aurelius persecutes Christians. Why? It's his job. Do you get the impression he's really enjoying this job? No. He does it out of pure duty. All right. In other words, he's following the categorical imperative. We'll find out what that is next year. But yeah, Marcus is the ultimate of uh, the best that Rome produced, and some part of the, in some extent, the best that our species has produced. Paul, you want to talk about this? Good. Look, any hesitation is yes. <laughs> else and I, I kind of I, don't know, I thought that was funny how he just 
he's, he doesn't like anybody that's around him except for the people he lists in the beginning of the book just so he can clear their names. Uh, <laughs> but, um, so Stoicism is, the, um, is one of the philosophies that emerged from the, um, after the breakup of a, a Socratic philosophy. We talked about um, Lucian the Skeptic. <coughs> But um, so in, in the meditations, he uh, I think he does a good job portraying stoicism, and I think that uh, you said that you were uh, you felt bad reading it. Reading. Um, don't you feel like a worm compared to this guy? And see, I don't. Maybe I'm horribly misreading this, but I get the opposite feeling. I feel like um, reading this book makes me want to be a stoic because okay. he. Because Marcus is such a good Stoic, he's like above everybody else. Yeah. And uh, granted, part of that is why he's so alone. But at the same time, it reminds me of a Juvenalian satire where he—I mean—he does. He puts himself. He's constantly saying. I mean, even the beginning of I think his book two. Um, he says that everybody he meets, when you wake up in the morning, everybody you meet is going to be just an awful person, but um, just deal with them and know that by being a Stoic, just by virtue of um, doing what Stoicism would entail, that you're just, you're better than them and to not let them, um, to not let them affect you. And so I really like reading this book because um, it's almost kind of empowering, it kind of empowers you to, to, to deal with um, the throes of life. Um, having the private notes of an emperor is, is, I think it's pretty valuable, especially one that's as great as Marcus Aurelius. Um, not only do you get a really good understanding of Stoicism uh, put into practice, but um, we get to see it, um, where we saw it in Epictetus, who was a slave, um, you get to see it at the highest echelon of society too, which I think is, I mean, is really rare. I mean, we don't see, how often do you see a leader of a nation that was as big as Rome that, um, that is an actual Stoic in practice? I think that America could use a couple of Stoics today in, uh, in, its, in its government. Um, he talks a lot about, um, a little bit at least, about pleasure, I think in, in book five, when he's talking about getting out of bed, something as simple as getting out of bed is um, is a. Uh, he actually talks a little bit about a little bit about it, and he says uh, he kind of smacks down Epicureanism in this in this chapter. He's because uh, he says you have to get out of bed and do your job, like you can't get around that. And um, he kind of responds to himself, but it's nice and comfortable in here. And uh, the way he lashes out at this self-made response, I thought was. I thought it was hilarious. He's, um, you don't, you're not made to feel nice. You're made to do your job. And God, there's just so much about that that I love. <laughs> the determination of this man is just awe-inspiring. Like I, I love it. This is um, the philosophy of will. Yeah. It helps you focus your will the way a magnifying glass focuses light. Like I will never be as determined as this man is to to just do his job, and um, he absolutely despises complaining. And again, I love this. Like, as um, um, so 
you know, he, he says that if you're comparing your suffering and your, um, what you have to what other people have, you're just wasting your time. You should only be concerned with things that you can control. And um, his philosophy is Aristotelian in the sense that you can use it. Like, it's stuff that is, is practical, and you really are not left questioning anything after reading. But it's not eudaimonistic. Right. It's not eudaimonistic. But um, one of the things I like most about the meditations is it's not confusing at all. It is... It is so simple. It is so short. It's written in like it's it's a numbered list of short mantras, um, and so you can't read this and be left confused. You know exactly what Marcus would do. You know exactly what you're told to do, and it's whenever you're in a stressful situation, whenever you feel down, it's great to open up a book and get told to shut up and yeah, just really deal with things. God bless him. It's probably the best. for many centuries by telling them to slap yourself upside the head and get grow up. I mean, this is the first, and I think probably the greatest self-help book yeah. that has ever been published. No, I think you're right. And even though it wasn't intended to be published, I think that this is an absolutely great part of the Western canon. I think that um, you said that it's a kind of a crime in universities that they don't teach the Western canon. Yeah. And I think if you had one book to just really quickly explain why this is such an important thing to be taught, I would not hesitate to recommend the meditations. I'm glad you like it as much as I do. So, God bless. Thank you, Paul. This is a book for the ages, and this is a book for the self. In other words, I don't know of anyone who wouldn't benefit by reading this. There's just, and this is one of those very few books that it's almost impossible to get yourself in trouble with this. All right, uh, Marcus is the ultimate intellectual tough guy, and uh, he writes a book to himself, which is most unusual. A, it wasn't a book actually. This were these were the Greek reflections and meditations that he kept for himself at the end of a long day because he didn't spend his time in Rome or most of his time in Rome. He spent it out in the uh, Danube area uh, fighting barbarians. And so he felt like it was his job, since he's the head of the Roman Empire, to go out there and live with the troops and lead the troops. Yeah. He says, stop crying about your library. You're not going to get it back. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, what he would much rather do if it were up to him, he would just like to go and read and think. I mean... He has, he's a deeply religious, deeply devout man, and uh, you know. that's the point. He says, uh, "Don't worry too much about praying for a long time. Three hours is enough." Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. He talked about the, the prayer of the Athenians. It's basically just like Zeus rain down on Athens. Yeah. He's like, "That's as simple as a prayer should ever be." <laughs> yeah, um, Marcus Aurelius cuts through a lot of nonsense and a lot of self-deception. And these are just meant to remind him of what he knows. All knowledge is but recollection. And at the end of you know, a long day, in some godforsaken camp, uh, you know, in the trees, uh, he writes this to himself because he has 
I mean, who does he hang with? Who does he have a drink with? I mean, nobody has no equals. And there's that wonderful passage where he says, look, you know what you're going to see today. What you're going to see today is what you saw yesterday. All right? Also what you're going to see tomorrow. All right? Everybody that comes before you is a liar of one kind or another. All right? They're either making stuff up or leaving stuff out. That's a fact. All, right? all the emperor, uh, all the governors from the various provinces, when they come in to give an account of what's going on there, you know, at the end of their uh, tenure, um, all of them have been stealing. I mean, you can be sure of it, 100%. All right? And if they're accused of stealing, the person that's accusing them, they're probably stealing even more. All right? um, nothing is what it seems. These people are lacking in virtue, but also lacking in self-respect. Yeah? Uh, his, his prospects on death in this book, I think, are, are really insightful. How he's constantly reminding himself that everybody, everybody dies, regardless of class, race, or creed. Everybody. That's hugely important. It's the great equalizer. All right? People live like they're going to live forever because, A, they don't want to think about the fact that life is finite, but, B, um, that gives them license to do stuff they know is wrong. And so he says, remember, you know, you're not, don't, live, don't act like you're going to live for 10,000 years. You're not. All right? What that means is that sooner or later you're going to give an accounting for your life. And you should always be ready to go. Uh, my favorite line is probably the one that says, nothing can happen to you that isn't natural. Yeah, that's actually a very beautiful line. All right. uh, and he's... He's uncertain about the existence of the gods. He's, he's something of an agnostic. He says, look, some people say that it's just atoms in the void. Others say that there's a benevolent deity behind it. I don't know. I don't have time to figure this out. All right. So I'm going to act as if there's a benevolent deity. If it turns out we're just atoms, it doesn't make any difference. Yeah. He references the logos a yes. lot. Yes. Is, is he treat that this is not Jesus. Right, it's, it's right, but it's not, is, it, it's, is it a deity? It's reason, and uh, it's, uh, it's a deity without a personality. Right, it's the conveyor of value, yeah? Wouldn't that just be a pre precursor to Pascal's wager that if Could it's be. atoms in the void, then it doesn't matter? Yep. And if there is God, then there you go, you benefit from it. Yeah, except that Pascal didn't have the kind of temptations that Marcus did. All right. In other words, imagine that there's no constraint upon your libido. No law prevents you from killing, having sex, getting, or getting drunk or high or whatever. Uh, from, no law prevents you from making your horse the consul, right, as Caligula did. I mean, there's, there's literally no restraint. The worst thing that I can imagine, the hardest condition I can imagine for a human being is to be in a position where there are no constraints of law on your desires. Right? Not one of us would last six months under those circumstances. We'd be lucky to get through the first day. All right? um, I don't know of anyone whose libido, whose desires are sufficiently restrained so that they just don't need law. The hell, you don't. I mean, we all find uh, society constraining and prevents us from doing what we want. Thank God for it. 
if we were not prevented from doing what we want, we would make our horse consul, fill the swimming pool with wine, drink it all. All right, so it's a good thing that they're not familiar with cocaine. You imagine Romans on cocaine, that. I mean, that, welcome to my nightmare. I mean, how would you control that? Bad enough that they got alcohol. All right. Um, this is, I think, the noblest outgrowth of Socratic philosophy. And I think it's the best thing in, in Roman life. In some respects, the best thing in life anywhere. A man of superior virtue who can have anything he wants. What does he tell himself? Even in a palace, it is possible to live well. Okay. Um, I don't know of anyone with that kind of self discipline. I mean, I hope that you do, but I doubt it. Don't let the fact that you own everything between Egypt and England uh, go to your head. Okay. You can have sex with anyone you want, with anything you want. Doesn't matter. There are plenty of people at court that are going to say, whatever you decide you want, and that's really great. So they'll tell you, yeah, make your horse consul. Absolutely. All right. Have a concubine for every day of the week. Absolutely. Small problem, not, don't worry about it. It only takes a little bit of time away from your work. A little bit of time away from my work? No, 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 you don't understand. <laughs> I have an empire to run. It's kind of, a, it's a very responsible job. And Marcus is a very responsible guy. So, he's keeping the wheels on this all-too-human organization because it has every known vice connected with an almost unstoppable power. There's a saying, Lord Acton said that uh, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Generally speaking, that is true. And then there's this, which, was, which God just sent in to mess with all of us, right, to wreck all our generalizations and also to show us what worms we are. Look, this guy doesn't have revelation. All he has is himself and his education. Remember that in the Plato's Republic, education is the guardian of the guardians. So how does he start his book? Remember, he's not writing this to anybody else. He's writing to himself. He says, first of all, don't kid yourself that you're a self-made man. No one's a self-made man. So you... There's a saying, you take, you owe. The people that have benefited you, you owe all of them. Your father made sure you get a good education. Your teachers were eminent men who gave you good example. All right? Your family was always behind you. All right? You think you constructed the world on your own? Hogwash. You didn't even construct yourself on your own. Marcus had, is obviously, this is genuine gratitude because he's not showing off for anybody. One of the things that's most astonishing about this book is how it, it's something like the Ring of Gyges in the sense that you get to look inside a guy's soul. All right, and what do we find there but golden images of the gods? Right, just like 
Marsyas and the Seder, you know, the, uh, uh, the Seder gets flayed in the symposium. Um, Marcus, as far as I can tell, the only other person that I think is in the same league as Marcus in terms of being a king or an emperor who did his best to pursue what was good was uh, uh, Ashoka in India. He's actually a pretty amazing guy. He's a warrior and he unifies much of India, but then has a conversion to Buddhism and thereafter stops killing stuff and sends out missionaries all over the world carrying Buddhism with them. Eventually they get into China, and that's how Chinese Buddhism starts. So uh, there are very few people given the opportunity to have absolute power that fail to make a disgrace of themselves. Right. So, uh, you know, this is a standing reproach to all of our self-pity. You having problems, Cupcake? Of course you are. All right. um, there are two kinds of problems in the world for the Stoics. Consider this. It's not complicated, and you already know this, but it's worth saying. There's the kind of problem you can fix, and there's the kind of problem you can. Any questions about that? <laughs> All right, well, let's start with the problems you can. Everybody dies. There's no point in being morose gazing at your knee and saying, oh, eventually I'm going to die. Yes, you are. So what? You're going to spend all your time being Kafka about that? Or are you going to step up and be a man? I mean, show me that you have the capacity to be a human being. Yeah, you're going to die. Get over it. Yeah? It seems like his, his just very like black and white, like, yes, you're going to die. It doesn't really matter. It's almost like destructive of every other philosophy. Yeah, there's that, of course. Um, you know, if you're a Stoic, um, all you can do is shrug your shoulders at, um, say, Epicureans or utilitarians. Say, yeah, of course. Naturally, that's what I'd expect from you. Of course. You want to absorb little pressures for your whole life. Yeah, well, that's worthy of a sponge. I mean, you are living a life of a primitive animal. Right? Mollusks have fun like that. Yeah. Furthermore, it's injurious to the whole. There we go. Right. Not doing your duty. You got a job to do, you know. What is it they say? Uh, what does Belichick says it, say, say it to the New England uh, Patriots? Do your job. In other words, let Tom Brady do his job. You have a job. You make a block. You you run a route. You do what you're supposed to do, right? If everybody does their job, things are going to work out great. Unfortunately, that almost never happens. Yeah. Um. Like this whole time, I was wondering though. I mean, he's such a great man. He has all these great things, but. The whole time I'm thinking, like, is he enjoying his life? Like, no. is he happy? So well, hold it. You, uh, you, you <laughs> dealt from the bottom of the deck there. First you asked, is he enjoying his life? And say, okay. thinking, is he happy? Is he happy? I'll go with that instead. Mm -hmm. But if he doesn't seem to believe that he's, um, he doesn't seem to believe that there's gods for sure or that it's found in the void, right. wouldn't he kind of seek happy? Like, I don't know if he's happy. He's a good man and he thinks more will make you good, but I don't really see him as happy. Okay. Well, make you happy, what would make him happy? What does he need to do? How does he need to improve? I mean, it seems like he doesn't really find any, like, joys that bring him, like, anything. Because he's always just like, oh, you did that good thing, good job. Like, I don't, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. It doesn't really seem that he's 
enjoying anything. And I, I think pleasure in, in enjoying something is totally different. Mm-hmm. Pleasure can be bad. I think enjoying something is not always bad. Mm-hmm. Well, one way of looking at it is that uh, he doesn't have to suffer through his own self-loathing. In other words, he respects himself because every day he gets up and does it and for 19 years, does his job. Yeah. From the beginning to the end, he doesn't. There's no vacation time for Marcus Aurelius. There's no downtime for Marcus Aurelius. He has a job to do. Mm-hmm. If he doesn't do it, the empire goes to hell and people suffer. And that's on him. Um, he's the last word in responsible politicians. I mean, I have to admit, he's a better man than I am. Yeah. Nonetheless, on, on, his, on your point, I think if, if Plato I read Marcus Aurelius, he'd say uh, a very good Democrat, but there is something higher. Okay, yeah. Um, the difficulty is, of course, that, well, he would say something is higher when he believed in the theory of forms. Um, what's going to be left when we don't have the theory of forms? Uh, Marcus Aurelius has more practical wisdom than pretty much anyone that I'm familiar with. Yeah, I mean, right? Just like, interested. so if the virtuous life is what he's saying, it's supposed to make you a good man, it's supposed to make you a happy man, per se, don't you think that he would be that? Not every uh, ethics is organized around eudaimonia. Um, Aristotle's. Aristotle's is, yeah, but Aurelius is not an Aristotelian. Um, What he's saying is, look, um, having people clap for you is vain and stupid. Having people say, my, Marcus, you're a really great guy. That's vain and stupid. He could be blasting Caligula and people would be telling him that. He says, that's not worth pursuing. What's worth pursuing? It's worth pursuing virtue, and it's worth pursuing it for its own sake, not for what it gets you. Okay. I mean, you know, so that's what the Republic is about. And when he says, let's pull away all reputation, let's pull away all uh, the things you get from being virtuous, and let's see if, if justice itself is worthwhile. And Marcus has concluded that it is. And then he acts that way. It's easy to conclude that it is. Acting that way for the rest of your life, damn, that's hard. So, I mean, I'm not trying to close you down, but I'm trying to say, remember that uh, not everyone is trying to be happy. Mm -hmm. And it is difficult to know exactly what we mean by happiness. For example, is a happy person someone that engages in lots of pleasure or engages in lots of good conduct or engages in good conduct to the point where they are self-sacrificing, where they give up their own pleasures for the benefit of other people. Uh, parents often do that. They sacrifice for their children. Right? Um, is that unhappy, do you think? I think maybe in his sense it would be an extreme. Yeah. Because he, I don't see him getting too much happiness out of this, but again, that's not his goal, so therefore, I mean, it doesn't really matter. It's not cool. I mean, the Stoics do have a view that virtu- the virtuous life is the happy life. Yeah. But what they mean by happy is not what Aristotle means by happy. Yeah, that's a that's a very good way of putting it. Yeah, um, happiness is knowing your job and knowing that you've done it right. Yeah. So that way you sit on you lie at your deathbed and you say, "Look, I did the best I could with what I had." Right. And uh, as Thomas More says in Utopia, dying with a clear conscience is actually a very valuable thing. So I feel like his goal is just contentness put it that way, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Think of about all the other Roman emperors. How many of them failed to disgrace themselves? And then we get this guy. He's just there as the kind of the black swan to mess with our brains. There's nobody like him. And uh, the Stoics hold the view that if one person can achieve something, everybody can. This is something that I actually wanted to ask you about. He has this view that uh, reason is universal, all people have it, and that it's a, a divine spark in everyone. Mm -hmm. And this view gives him a concept of almost universal human equality mm -hmm. in a certain sense. Yes. Which is, was surprising to me because I thought that's something that only comes with Christianity and Judaism. You're right. But it actually is, we have it first in Stoicism. Well, I mean, remember Stoicism is what's going to generate the idea of natural law, which is going to be lifted by Aquinas, and that's where Aquinas gets it from. In other words, it's not made out of whole cloth. It's actually a Stoic legacy. Yeah, I, I see it just laid out right there. Right, absolutely right. Um, excuse me. Uh, Human beings for the Stoics are all endowed with reason, which means that they are potentially all philosophers. But there's a difference between the potentiality and the actuality. All right? Most people live like swine. And Marcus says, I even take care of them, because it's my job. They want to line up at the trough, I got to make sure the trough is full. Such is my job. It's a thankless task, but you know, the gods decided to put me here. I'm just doing my job. Yeah. So does Stoicism carry on the inegalitarianism of uh, Platonism? Um, in practice, yes. In theory, no. In theory, everybody could be, uh, if they got the same education as Marcus Aurelius, they could potentially be Stoic philosophers. Alas, um, heteronomy, human emotion, is such that None of them. And then there's Marcus Aurelius for no reason. Simply God's messing with us. His constant reminders to himself about how to be virtuous and how to do the right thing and don't let the power go to your head um, are the product of self-doubt and weakness. Right. In other words, look, he's not a marble statue. He's a human being. He works seven days a week, 365 days a year, for 19 years. He is full of world weariness. The Germans have a term for this because they have a term for everything. That's Weltschmerz. I feel the pain of the world. I am the pain of the world. And yet, I grit my teeth and get my job done. Two choice, two possibilities. You have the things you can change, the things you can't change. You can't change death. You can't change the material facts of human life. Right? We all have a liver and lungs and heart and stuff. And uh, some of them work well and some of them don't. That's the way it is. Um, on the other hand, there's another large set of things that you can change. All right. For example, there are some people that have vodka for breakfast. Now, if you have vodka for breakfast, you have a problem. All right. But it's not the kind of problem you can't change. It's the kind of problem you can change. And, here's the punchline, either you change it or it doesn't get changed. No one is going to stop drinking for you. 
Matter of fact, nobody can. So standing around, waiting for somebody else to come along and solve your problems is a waste of time. That's the human condition. You got millions and millions of idiots, all right, refusing to take responsibility, refusing to grow up, and refusing to fix the things that they can fix. Instead, they want somebody else, some human or some god to come down and fix everything. All right, standing around waiting for the world to fix your problems, all right, means you're not prob your problems aren't gonna get fixed. If there is any solution to those soluble problems, the solution is you. So there's two things worth considering here. Right? The source of all your problems is you. The solution to all your problems is also you. Pick your vice and then ask yourself, who's gonna fix this if not the person that has the vice? So, there's no point in complaining about things you can't change because you can't change them. There's no point in complaining about things you can change because you can change them. We're running out of excuses. Oh, you gotta think about my upbringing, and I had an unhappy childhood, and capitalism, and you know, abstractions around it, Trump, and uh, racism. And, uh, no, your problems are you, all right? All these evasions give you license to be angry with somebody else for the problems you cause yourself. What this means is, and I think there's a lot of truth in this, ultimately there is no political solution to the problems of human beings. In other words, you could have really great laws and really great institutions and your life could still be a mess. Yeah? It seems that not only is there something deeply selfish about this, philosophy, but there's um, perhaps a, an abandonment of um, the, the people who use a uh, like swine, which is, I guess that um, it's all well and good. It seems to me that uh, Marcus Aurelius takes good care of his own conscience, of which he's steward, but he abandons the world to a commodus um, and does not okay. seem to have really done anything about that. Okay. Two things. Um, yeah, you're right. It is a problem. The succession is a big problem. But remember that he's not capable of knowing in advance what Commodus is going to do, all right? Also, when you go around looking for, for a philosopher king to take his spot, um, where do you anticipate finding one? In other words, after Marcus Aurelius, there's only bad and worse, yeah? Couldn't you anticipate finding one through like nurturing one or like helping one individual out? Sure, it's, I mean, it's, it, that's certainly a possibility. Probably you want to do a bunch of them, because you want to pick the best, you know, the pick of the litter. The problem is, um, there's no way to to mass produce or even to produce with any certainty a thing like Marcus Aurelius. He's try. a freak of nature. You could try, though. Yeah, absolutely, you could try. Yeah. And uh, that certainly would be um, suitable conduct. But remember that he, because he's so busy running the Roman Empire, um, he doesn't have a lot of time to inquire. You know, who's doing well, who's doing badly. You know, let me talk to the mandarins. He doesn't have mandarins working for him. Yeah. You have to remember, Commodus grew up in a palace. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the, with tons of people who were trying to uh, gain favor with him uh, and 
satisfy his every whim. And I'm sure Professor Bailey has tried to assign him good tutors and good teachers, tried to give him the kind of education he had received, but there were people there waiting to corrupt him. Look, just about nobody is, um, in other words, the furthest reach of human virtue is what I'm seeing here in Marcus Aurelius. This is not a supernatural virtue. This is an all-too-natural virtue, but it's really rare. I mean, he's a freak of nature in that respect. Yeah, you're right. He didn't have a good plan for picking up the slack. On the other hand, um, Commodus, although he was a nightmare, wasn't all that much worse than any other Roman emperor. Most of them were nightmares. But I guess there seems to be something about, I guess, a contradiction, at least as it appears to me, insofar as he's first and foremost in all that he's doing is trying to keep his own house in order, mm -hmm. um, which seems to have a pretty good effect on, on the empire. It's, it's well run. Um, but it, it's not really about running the empire well or raising his own son well. It, it's about Marcus Aurelius. These are right. Well, he's, he's trying to do his job. So um, his job is not the gratification of his own desires. It's pursuing a, a larger social good. And uh, the difficulty is that, uh, remember that one of the things that marked the Roman Empire were assassinations of emperors. There was one year when there were four emperors, right, three of which had a, had a tough time. And uh, in addition to that, Rome was plagued by civil wars. So when you're looking for a successor, um, if you find him early and you uh, make him your adopted son, which is actually what Marcus, what, what uh, Marcus's uh, pre previous emperor had, had done with him, um, but if you aren't going to have the empire go to your only living son, um, there isn't certainly the possibility that this is going to lead either to assassination or civil war. Right? That's the other concern. And so uh, I can see why Marcus would have some trepidation if he can't, if early in his career he can't find somebody who looks like he's going to be uh, a genuinely great Stoic. What do you do? I mean, you pull a name out of a hat, hard to know. Uh, if you ask around among the teachers, who's the best of your students? They're liars too. You can't trust them either. Right? They're going to be putting in somebody's brother-in-law or somebody's nephew or something like that. Um, everybody has an agenda. So Marcus knows that he's never getting perfectly honest uh, information from anybody. Trying to put that together is very, very difficult. You're only as good as your intelligence. So you're right. He, he didn't give us a good successor. On the other hand, we're lucky that he was the last of the good Antonine emperors. We're lucky to get a string of five good ones. Right? Remember that, that's the that's extremely unusual. Right. But you're right. You know, you're quite right. Um, he didn't give us a good successor. Whoever he gave us wasn't going to be able to step up and do what Marcus did, I don't think. But uh, yeah, he gave us a particularly bad one with Commodus. Fair enough. Okay. So Stoicism is a philosophy of will. It's also a philosophy of resignation. You take with what nature or the gods dish out to you. 
One of the great Roman Stoics, Epictetus, was a slave. Marcus is another great one. He's an emperor. It doesn't matter whether you get born a slave or an emperor. You've got a place in life. You've got a position in society. You have a job to do. Do it. Be a good slave. Be a good weaver. Be a good magistrate. Be a good emperor. You've got a job to do. Get it done. Now, don't do it for the wrong reason. This is part of the discipline. You don't do it to become famous, or to get a promotion, or to get a raise, or to get a party thrown in your honor. You do it because it's your job. All right? So don't get cute and report back to Marcus Aurelius that you've done your job. I mean, that's fine to let him know, but don't expect that he's going to give you a birthday present for that. You did your job. I did my job. I didn't ask you to praise me, even though everybody does, because I'm the emperor. And I don't have any, I don't see any point in praising you because there are another million people who are also doing their jobs. I just don't have time for this crap. Grow up. Yeah. What did people think of him at the time that he was writing? They thought he was a demigod. In other words, um, this guy, well, he was one of the very few, remember that Roman emperors are divine, but he was one of the very few people that clearly performed the rituals that come with being, uh, with being the emperor um, with solemnity and seriousness. That's how he got the nickname Marcus Aurelius, Marcus the Golden. There's nothing like this guy. I know he um, is great because he had all these temptations because he was an emperor and he still refused them. But do you think in part the reason he was so good is because, um, like would he be saying all this if he wasn't so high up? I mean, if he was a low slave, would he be Would he Epictetus be did something very much like it. He wrote a book called the Enchiridion, which is the handbook, that's mm -hmm. what it means, uh, for Stoics. And it's shorter, uh, he doesn't have as much time to write as Marcus, mm -hmm. but uh, it says essentially the same stuff. And so, so then my point there is if, if, if Marcus Aurelius was a slave, would he have then published his work so he could kind of be known? Or he, well, you he... see, he didn't publish this work. When he died, he ordered that all this stuff be burned, which shows, it's, again, it's not an ego trip. He doesn't actually want this to be burned, to be shown. It, people read it and say, okay, well, we got it. We, got, we can't burn this. It's just, no. And they publish it, but Marcus Aurelius would feel embarrassed by the publication of this. I mean, A, this just shows my own weakness. And B, um, you know, it sets me up, it makes me look like a really great guy, but actually I'm just a guy doing his job. There's nothing really great about me. You call me great because you fall for, so far short. It's a way of excusing yourself. Kind of a dumb question, why wouldn't he burn them himself if he was so adamant? Probably because he was really sick. Right? He's living in a northern climate, he comes from Italy. Uh, you know, when you get sick there, you get real sick. <clears throat> Apparently he wasn't able to do that. So he just used to accumulate these writings in Greek. And they were, they're like Pascal's Pensees, they were a jumble of scrolls and stuff. And uh, they found this and we got to hold on to this. I mean, Marcus Aurelius is great for making, at least me, feel really guilty. What a worm I am. All right? I mean, I do often enough the wrong thing. And even when I do the right thing, I often do it for the wrong reason. But he just 
grinds it out every day. I get the impression that his weariness is such that he's actually looking forward to dying. In other words, this is such a strain, such a constant grind. It says, uh, every day I, before I go to sleep, I write myself a little note saying, don't be a jerk. All right. Be a human being. Maintain your virtue and your reason despite all temptations. And then I go to sleep and I do another 16 hours of running the empire. And then at the end of it, I write this down because I have something of insomnia and I remind myself that this is the only true happiness. He's also lonely and he has no one else to talk to about this, but it's also something he can't change because he can't just make people. His wife was notoriously unfaithful, right? Um, his, uh, there were lots of conspiracies uh, among the troops. A number of times he had, uh, I mean, he just shows great magnanimity in, in the uh, Aristotelian sense. For example, in the, in the eastern part of the Roman Empire, some eminent journal, uh, general that had a, a number of legions under his command revolted and was ready to march on Rome. Marcus says, look, here I am in the middle of the forest in Romania, wherever I am, Germany, and uh, much as I'm needed here to fight off the barbarians, um, I got to get back to the Med because I have a civil war on my hands. Um, Marcus gets back there and then he finds out that the crisis has been averted because the second, third, and fourth in command of this general assassinated him. Okay, well look, this is the, remember, this is the kind of environment in which he works. Anybody can get killed at any time. God knows it happens enough. We have civil war. We have conspiracy. We have assassination. I mean, this is, this is the kind of thing that makes a man Machiavelli. Okay, um, when he gets back, he hears that the that the uh, M, that the uh, conspirator that the conspirator has been killed. Okay, what does he do? He doesn't do the typical Roman thing. Usually, um, when somebody conspires against the emperor, the emperor utterly destroys him, which is to say, of course, you kill him in some gruesome way if you catch him alive. But then you murder his family. And then you confiscate all his property. I mean, they're playing for big stakes here. Um, and then, of course, you hunt down, because no conspiracy happens in a vacuum, you hunt down everybody that might have, or could have, or should have been involved in this, and you kill all of them to round them up and you murder them. Marcus doesn't do that. First thing Marcus says is, um, I don't want you to kill his children and his wife. They didn't actually do this conspiracy. So you let them slide. And he actually sends to, the, to uh, the Senate saying, I want them given amnesty. And again, who's going to argue with him? And then uh, he says, all the papers from this conspiratorial journal, gen general, instead of combing through them, or having my spies comb through them, to find out who's involved with this, he says, I want them all burned without being read. In other words, here's a man who, who, who is willing to show the extreme virtue of mercy insofar as possible. Again, the idea that Romans were bloodthirsty you know, psychopaths, no. I mean, some of them were, 
but some of them were this, yeah. It's kind of interesting is that Epictetus, I've read a little bit of his ingredient, and you mm-hmm. would strongly disagree with the mercy that Marcus really shows. That's right. There's something more than stoic about Marcus. Yes, you're right about that. Um, mercy would seem to be uh, giving in to your more compassionate impulses, and that may not be rational. On the other hand, maybe it is. Maybe, maybe. I mean, again, what they're having an argument about is um, the consequences of mercy. All right? If you can reasonably expect that they're not going to cause any further problem, why are you going to kill those children? And Epictetus has some explaining. He says, look, the law is the law. Marcus says, look, I'm the law. <laughs> I decide what gets done. And I decided that I'm not going to kill people pointlessly and that taking revenge is beneath me. Damn. I mean, it's just, it's just, he's just, just good and better. Yeah. The greatest revenge you can have on a person is to not imitate them. That's right. That's right. Um, this general who's engaged in a civil war of conspiracy, this idiot wanted my job. <laughs> Number one, are you stupid? <laughs> you want my job, of course you do. Because you have no idea what it involves. And it's a sure thing that this is a ticket to you becoming Caligula. This is a one-way ticket. You want my job, of course you do. I don't want job. I'd actually be happy to have you conspire and take over, except that that would mean that I wasn't doing my job. Yeah. It seems like Marcus Aurelius and Stoicism is sort of the furthest thing we can possibly get from, from like Machiavelli in that Marcus Aurelius tries to be like as seems as little concerned with consequences as he can reasonably be, whereas Machiavelli is solely concerned with consequences. That's right. That's right. And Machiavelli wants power, whereas Marcus Aurelius doesn't. He, he would just... Uh, Mark, Marcus says, look, um, real power, the only power really worth having, is power over yourself. One of the great ideas that comes from Plato, and this is, I think, worth considering at some length, no man is fit to govern other people till he learns to govern himself. Consider our president. The conspiratorial general can't even control his own ambition, much less is he going to be able to control millions and millions of people. Marcus defeats the conspiratorial general out of duty, not out of inclination. He's not afraid of getting killed or assassinated. That's the least of his problems. That's among those things he can't control. Well, he would have gone out then, you know, bleeding in the, the right. Senate like yeah. Caesar did, and saying, damn, I should have thought of that. I mean, I should have been on top of that. It's my job not to get assassinated. Mm-hmm. Well, which it is. I remember that a man like this knows full well that whoever comes next is going to be worse. And that could be like, that could even be like a really good emperor, but he still just can't match Marcus. Well, again, um, the, I don't know of any human being like this. All right? um, 
On the next book we're reading is Augustine's Confessions. And Augustine is right, people are just awful. But this doesn't fit into that model of human depravity. Um, this guy doesn't seem to have any of that Pauline bondage of the will, quite the opposite. This guy hasn't had a conversion experience, he's something of an agnostic, and he says, look, regardless, I'm digging in my heels, standing right here and doing my job until I get relieved from my post. It's a great philosophy for military people. You know, that if you're going to West Point or Annapolis, if I were teaching at West Point or Annapolis, I would load it with stoicism. Why? Because look, what we have here is young people that are going to have to learn to endure hardship and danger and wounds and even death, and that they're going to have to do their duty whether they find it convenient or not. Yeah. The guardians and the auxiliaries, they have to be willing to stand and fight. All right? And they can't be worried about their own life and death. They have to be worried about doing the right thing. Fear is the right kind, or rather, courage is the right kind of fear. It's knowing what to, what's really fearful, which is evil, and what isn't, which is death or pain. Right? So Marcus has a well-organized soul. Yeah. Can you say like that, like the hermits or like someone like Saint Anthony, kind of have the same ideals as him, so they could be like a comparison or someone on the same line as him. The very the the emphasis on austerity. Yes. In other words, if Marcus had been born, uh, say with a a freeman with a good the same education, who wasn't you know destined to be an emperor. He's the kind of guy that would go back to the library or his own library and sit and read it. And uh, he'd, be, he'd live a very austere life. Not quite bread and water, but close. He doesn't want anything fancy. He doesn't want fancy clothes. He doesn't want a fancy palace. He, he liked really good books. And he said, if I had my choice, you know, I'd be reading, but you know, I can't do that. I have stuff to do. The, the only thing compar comparable to this is the, the diaries of uh, the saints. And the, the thing that's shocking, though, is that they had divine grace to help them out and the hope of eternal happiness. Uh, and they, 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 some of them might have been maybe more virtuous than Marcus, but nonetheless, he did almost what they did without any of the help. That is sheer will. Yeah. I mean, that's the ultimate intellectual tough guy. I mean, he doesn't want to hear any. Look, it's easy to be impatient with other people's excuses. What he's learned is to be intolerant of his own. No. Um, whatever crappy pseudo-justification you're going to give me for doing the wrong thing, save it. We'll just fast forward through that. You're a wretch. All right? You can decide to stop being wretched, but right now you're a wretch. All right? Let me know if you ever decide to change. All right? um, here's a score. Um, your problems are not going to get solved except by you. Stop waiting around for somebody else to solve your problems. That's not the way the world works. Um, he's an adult in a world full of children. I mean, he's the adult in the room. And um, that has its own kind of inner light. In other words, people make way for this guy because he's decided to be a human being and not less.
Okay. Yeah, I was just gonna say the one line where you're talking about, um, kind of like simplicity. He says, uh, "The Falernum, this exactly, or this exactly highly commended wine, is but a rare juice of an ordinary grape. This purple robe, but sheep's hairs, dye with it with a blood of a shellfish. So essentially, all these great things, wine, you get out of it, he just dumbs it down to a grape. Yeah. Well, again, um, these are." good things in a very attenuated sense, in the sense that they're not poisonous. Mm -hmm. But Marcus doesn't care about the quality of the wine. He gets the best wine in the, emperor, in the empire, of course, but he only has half a glass in the course of a day. Yeah. One, one line he has is, uh, whenever something is presented to you, uh, figure out what it is That's and what right. its value is. Yeah. A man is worth only so much as the things with which he concerns himself. Yeah, that actually is true. All right. uh, waste your time right, playing video games and you have a virtual life. Marcus has decided to step up and face the biggest responsibilities in his society. And no complaining, no feeling sorry for yourself. Instead, he just reminds himself, look, you've got nothing to complain about. Yeah? Question for a line I did not understand, which is in book three. Uh, there's one who says, Dear city of Cecrops, wilt thou not say, Oh, dear city of Zeus? But I don't know the, the reference. Okay. You'd have to look it up. Um, here's a question um, What is Aurelius doing for the rest of humanity? How does he help other people out? Because that's your job, of course. All right. As he says, look, you get tired of the way people are, understandable. Here are your choices. Educate them or put up with them. Those are your choices. And actually, that's true then and it's true now. You don't like your political opponents? Well, either you explain to them and help them understand what, why they're wrong, or you shrug your shoulders and put up with them because it's not possible that there should be a world without idiots. Hmm? I feel like he, he, for the most part, just puts up with, the, with people, but I feel like at the same time, with the publishing of his meditations, I think he does a fair amount of educating too. He does, but remember, he doesn't want it published, right? Yeah. I think in a sense, he's just toughing them up. Like, he's not in any way trying to win their... He's not trying to please. Like he's not trying to please them. He's just trying to toughen them up, essentially, through his own example. Okay, maybe. I mean, remember that most people aren't going to have direct or even indirect knowledge of Marcus Aurelius. They know he's the emperor, but remember that uh, Roman emperors, when they went from one to another, um, they used to keep the statues in every city of the current Roman emperor, and they would just remove the head and stick another head on. You no, know, that's actually how Roman statuary works. I mean, they're practical people. Why replace all statues? Stick another head. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Same body. Right. Yeah. I mean, well, because they're always in really elegant armor, and they always are, you know, have a sword and are ready to kill you if they have to. But I mean, just one head after another doesn't make any difference. It must have been quite lively during the year of the four emperors. We just juggling them up and down. Right? I mean, every couple of months you put another head on the shoulders and you ask yourself, why would anyone fight to get this job? What do you, I mean, after two 
two emperors have been killed in a given year, and you're the, you're the third guy, so you know what, I really want to be emperor. What, are you stupid? <laughs> okay. Um, what Marcus does, if I understand him correctly, is protect his people from bad events. Um, if he, he pr tries to protect them from invasion by barbarians, that's understandable. Um, he tries to protect them from civil war, understandable. He tries to protect them from rapacious officials, understandable. He tries to protect them from natural disasters, earthquakes and floods and hurricanes and stuff. Yeah. Okay, well here's the question. Um, since Marcus doesn't think that any of these things are bad, in other words, um, he's a stoic, and you know, what do you expect that there's going to be civil wars and earthquakes? Right? Yeah. Um, the stoic would just shrug his shoulders and say, well, such is the universe. Oh, I have nothing to eat? I'm going to go hungry. Oh, I'm starving? Well, I'm going to die. Nothing to get excited about. But what Marcus is doing, if I understand it correctly, is protecting everybody else from things that they think are bad Mistakenly. <laughs> and that's the tricky part here. Why is he pr protecting them from imaginary evils? I mean, the events themselves are not imaginary, they're quite real. But to think that this is a misfortune shows a bad misunderstanding of the human condition. There are no misfortunes. As he says, all omens are favorable if I in declare them so. <laughs> So, earthquake, my house fell on me, okay. Um, I would like my fellow human beings to perhaps rescue me, but um, it doesn't really make any difference. Right, I can be stoic under this column market, be stoic, stoic walking around, doesn't make any difference, right? So, it doesn't perfectly cohere. Right? He's reducing himself to the level of an ordinary human being and judging what's good and bad for them in those terms. His persecution of Christians. Why? Well, um, he's heard about these people. They live at the same time. As a matter of fact, Marcus lives at the same time as Justin Martyr. And it's some strange superstition from the East. And strange cults are always coming in. Isis and Mithras. You know, they, they, they come all the time. And Marcus says, look, all right, my job is to maintain order and stability. These people are a threat to that. I try and have my governors and magistrates show a reasonable restraint. In other words, like we saw with Trajan and Pliny, I don't like anonymous letters turning people in. I don't know how much of the stuff to say about Christianity, or they say about Christianity that I should believe. But when Christians are caught, um, either they're going to prove loyal or they're going to prove seditious. And I want them to prove loyal. I don't get anything out of them being seditious. And least of all does Marcus enjoy, you know, throwing them to the lions or torturing them to death or setting them on fire to use as uh, torches, which is what Nero did. Right? 
Instead, Marcus says, look, I'm going to talk to you once and only once about this, because I'm not, I'm a stoic, I don't repeat myself. All right? You are going to stop doing this, and you're going to sacrifice to the emperor like all good people do. And if you don't, it's not that I think I'm a, I'm a god or anything, far from it, but in the Roman religion, I am a god, and I have to be shown proper respect, because Rome has to be shown proper respect. Okay, so it turns out these people are really stubborn. They don't care whether they want to kill them and their children. Kill them and their children. Go ahead. You know, he gives the order. Not because he's really enjoying this, but rather, what else is he going to do? It's his job. Yeah. I'm really curious about the history of his persecution of the Christians, because at the end of uh, the first apology, Justin Martyr has a letter from Emperor Marcus Aurelius saying, stop persecuting the Christians. These guys really helped me in Germany. Yeah, um, that may have, well, we don't know um, the degree to which that is reliable. Yeah. That's the problem, mm -hmm. right? Um, and uh, Marcus may have gotten help from them. I think it's unlikely. What, what he said, what the letter says actually, is mm -hmm. that he ignored their religion, but then there was a time of trouble, and he asked uh, all of his legionaries to pray to their gods for him. And when the Christians prayed, uh, for his success, he had success. Yeah, but that seems very, very dicey. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's unlikely to be true, but if it is true, that would be really cool. <laughs> if he did it at, in the year 300, I would believe it. In the year 160, I think we're a little early. Don't you think he would kind of relate or sympathize to the Christian beliefs or teachings, and therefore, like, kind of... The worship of a dead Palestinian criminal? Well, not the Nazi... Not that, like the rule, Gnostic rule. kind of, but don't you think he would see... He's a dead Palestinian criminal for the regular kind of Christian, too. <laughs> but if he heard some of the teachings, uh, like... Like the last shall be the first and the first shall be the last. Right. And so the Roman Empire is going to sink and then the slaves are going to run things. Yeah, you don't like that. But what about, like, how he... Um, like, even all these, these corrupted people and he still treats them, like, with respect because they don't know any better. Jesus... But he doesn't treat them with respect. He treats them with... Uh, Official um, equanimity. His, he, he, the people he respects are listed in the front of the book. Right. He doesn't right. condemn them in right. the same way Jesus doesn't. Well, yeah, okay. Uh, so, so, so don't you think he would? Look, I think both Marcus, that Marcus is a deeply religious man, but I'm very skeptical about pulling Christian rabbits out of stoic hats. Mm -hmm. Right? In other words, yeah. Um, Christians worship a dead Palestinian criminal, and then they do a magic ceremony where they actually engage in ritual cannibalism. Mm -hmm. And Marcus has listened to that and said, that's the most depraved thing I've ever heard. Yeah. That's really bad. I'm going to kill you all. Yeah. But first, let me give you a chance not to get killed, because this is just what I do. Yeah. All right. So he thinks he's being as indulgent to them as he can. Yeah. And he says, look, clearly he doesn't like killing people. It's not something that he enjoys. Remember that the, that the uh, Stoics are the ones who come up with the idea of being cosmopolitan. Anybody know what cosmopolitan means? The city of the world. Well, something like that. Um, it means being a citizen of the universe. In other words, the cosmos is my polis. All right? So you toss a, a Stoic anywhere, anytime, at any place in society, he knows what to do. And that kind of universal thinking about right and wrong, to come back to this, 
neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. It's the same for everybody. Mm-hmm. All right? But this is a, a cognitive choice, whereas I don't think Christianity is primarily cognitive. Right? What knocks Paul off the horse on the road to Damascus is not some logical insight. It's the hand of God. So, um, Marcus Aurelius has much to teach all of us. And yes, if there's any book that the world needs, this is a good example of it. Um, I don't know of anyone that's ever been corrupted by reading this. On the other hand, I do, I can imagine. um, When I taught this many years ago at Columbia, one of my students said, uh, I just couldn't read this because I can't believe there's anybody like this. And I was saying, that's a failure of imagination. All right. That's because you, you become too inured and too used to um, the low expectations we have of human beings. Yeah, everybody has feelings, but not everyone acts like a jerk. All right. And um, lots of people make excuses to themselves for their own weaknesses and for their own choices. But ultimately, there aren't any excuses for anybody. Um, I got to admit, uh, in some ways, Marcus is worth the price of admission. In other words, you got your twenty-five and thirty thousand dollars worth, of, you know, the paid for tuition this year. You got it reading this book, and this book by itself is going to make your life better if you have anything in the way of wit. All right, because. Um, He's right about our moral duties. He's also right about our moral responsibilities. And you have, a, have responsibilities to other people, even if they're not nice to you, even if they're not virtuous, even if they're real jerks. If you stand around waiting for people to deserve your help, you're going to wait forever. In some ways, this connects back to a sort of Christian theme. So. Your point is actually nicely taken here. Um, Here's something that I think is true. And there aren't all that many things that I do think is true, but here's something worth thinking about. You have to love people as they are, not as you want them to be. If you wait for people to become what you want them to be, you'll wait forever and you're not going to love anybody. There are a whole ton of people who are standing there waiting for you to become what they want you to be, and you're not. And they're not going to love you because they're waiting for you to become worthy of love. Here's the, in, the inside scoop. Nobody's worthy of love. And God loves us anyway. You've got to love people as they are, not as you want them to be. That's something actually worth thinking about. All right. You love them as they are or you don't love them at all. That being said, come back in on Thursday, ready to talk about Marcus Aurelius. And each of you should have at least one, but preferably a couple of quotes that you are going to tattoo on your brain. <laughs> right, so it never comes away. I'll see you all later.